You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. against an evil cloud entity, Kirk and his crew were adjusting to their new roles on and off the Enterprise. That is until a distress call forces them back into their old roles to battle one of, if not the most iconic villain to ever exist in the Star Trek canon, Khan. Now, Khan had first appeared on the TV series in 1967 in the episode Space Seed and had rung a chord with fans. Now, skip ahead to 2009 at the start of the Star Trek Into Darkness's development, and director J.J. Abrams says that despite having a world of infinite possibilities before them due to the reimagining of the series, they had to bring Khan back, and fans agreed, making it the highest-grossing Star Trek film thus far. But not everybody is as enthusiastic, including LeVar Burton, who was quoted as saying he felt that the J.J. Abrams Star Trek lacked Gene Roddenberry, or rather, perhaps his vision. What do you think about it? I'm conflicted. You're conflicted? Yeah. Now why? Because, um, at the end of, of, of the movie, I really care about what happens to the characters, but I'm pretty much missing Gene Roddenberry in J.J.'s interpretation. Ah. And at the end of the day, that's just not okay for me. He also had this to say during an interview with the Toronto Sun. Abram's Star Trek was a great movie, and he brought a whole new generation to Trek, but I'm a little disquieted by things I hear coming out of his camp. Things like he would like to be remembered as the only Trek, which would discount everything before he got there. There's breaking the canon, which he did by reinventing Star Trek's timeline, but there's also honoring the canon. And to pretend that to be the only is really egocentric and immature. I just came from a conference in San Francisco with advanced microtech devices, and they're working on technology towards building a holodeck. That was the next generation, and that's part of what Star Trek has brought to the culture. So when J.J. Abrams says there should be no Star Trek except the one I make, I call bullshit, J.J. Now, considering the man not only played Geordi LaForge in The Next Generation TV and movies, he also directed episodes in The Next Generation, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, and Enterprise. It stands to reason the man knows a thing or two about the IP and what it's all about. This week, we're going to talk about these two Star Trek sequels, both new and old. But before we get into that, do you remember your first introduction to Star Trek? Yeah, my dad was a huge Star Trek fan, and I don't remember exactly what my first introduction was. Like, I'm sure the original series was in syndication somewhere at the time, like, I don't know, Nick at Night or something like that. I don't remember. But I even remember uh, watching the old animated series because that was actually on, like, right around the time I was I was the right age for it. And, you know, we watched that all the time. I didn't know, like, in retrospect how bad it was <laughs> but you know it's what i knew and i i can't even tell you how many times i watched those first four movies on vhs growing up right see i my first introduction was with the movies as well which i was young enough especially for the first one that it had just come out and it was exciting and then the wrath of Khan, I, I remember more because by then i was just about to enter my young teens and of course search for spock pretty iconic of that time Despite that, of course, what was far more impressing on me at that age was when The Next Generation came out, and that was in 87. So when that came out, I was 16, and so that made a huge impression on me. Just like the original Trek influenced a lot of people who were young well, not just young, I shouldn't say it influenced a lot of people, but you know, when you're young and impressionable and have so much imagination on tap, then this really just feeds that. And so the, when the next generation came out, that was the same thing for me. Now, 
despite being a huge fan of that series. I've never been, I don't consider myself a Trekkie. I, I enjoy the movies, but I'm, I've got no problems being critical of them as well kind of thing. So it's, it's just an appreciation of it. And then after The Next Generation came out, I had, I tried to watch Deep Space Nine. <laughs> really didn't last very long. I, don't, I honestly, I don't even remember if I lasted the entire first season. I might have watched the first season and part of the second and then finally gave up. And I had never actually watched Voyager or, or uh, Enterprise. Well, I actually, I still haven't watched Enterprise, but I've been working on Voyager now that it's on Netflix. So again, that's just to lay the groundwork here for people when we're talking about these movies, I, I appreciate what they are and I, and I, and I enjoy them. And some, some of the things that I've seen, I really like a lot, but I've got no bones about saying, you know, what I really don't like. See, that's, it's interesting because, you know, when next generation came out, I was still rather young and, you know, I could appreciate it as being, you know, the fun sci-fi show, but it wasn't until like the tail end of the series that I, I really started kind of getting a lot of the Star Trek message, if you will. And like, since I'm, yeah several years younger than you (laughs) like deep space nine was really my series it's the one that you know in my teenage years was the one that i really watched and i'll fully admit that the first couple seasons were horrendous but like in when i look back on star trek like after i think the third or fourth season the the next several years of that show were my star trek you know that's that's what i identify with as star trek the thing too is that when you're that age you're a lot more forgiving of whatever's wrong with it I mean, we're currently watching The Next Generation again. Uh, For me, again, for my wife, she's actually missed a number of episodes, and then I'm watching it with my youngest son, who, of course, never saw any of these. So we've watched the movies with him, and he's enjoyed them, but he'd never seen the series. And it's one of those, again, where as you're watching it, you're a lot more critical as an adult, and you watch especially the first season. (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) come on, Riker, you're not John Wayne. Walk like a normal human being. (laughs) And there's all kinds of... You wear one of those suits and try to walk like a normal human. (laughs) So there's a lot of things that, you know, weren't that great. But The Next Generation was another one that it got so good and actually quite fast. And when you're looking at episodes like The Inner Light, which came out in the fifth season which is highly regarded by most people as the best Star Trek episode period. And I remember, I remembered it from when I saw it, when it first came out. And when we finally got to that episode, when I, we were, we've been watching it together, it was like the episode finished. And I, I told my son, I said, this is why we have a flute in the library. I don't play it because it is that hard, but we have it because of that episode because it struck such a chord. So there there have been moments throughout the years where the episodes were justifiably that amazing. Now, that being said, let's go back to LeVar Burton's quotes there. What do you think? I will definitely agree with him that... Abrams' interpretation of Star Trek is not, you know, the Roddenberry version, you know, the the exploration and, you know, all of that. However, I also don't think a Roddenberry-inspired Star Trek would work these days. Like, I think yeah, I kind of have to use the, the, the Batman line. <laughs> the, the Abrams' Star Trek isn't the Star Trek uh, we deserve, <laughs> But it's the it's I, I screwed that up. I know, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it, it it's the Star Trek for the 21st century and for audiences these days. This this is what it's kind of have to be because I think if they did a true Roddenberry vision, I don't think we would have even gotten a sequel. Like the hardcore fans would have gone out, but that's what made the first Abrams Star Trek so so much of a big deal that it brought in millions of people who had no interest in Star Trek before and this new you know modern day interpretation of Star Trek has really caught on with a lot of people and that hadn't been exposed to it or really cared for it before not if you look at it in the terms of the groups of people that would that are watching this you can look at the group of people that are the hard core Star Trek fans that have absolutely no use for it because it broke canon, because of everything else. And that's fine. I can respect that. If you're that dedicated to the IP, fine. That's all right. If somebody broke Indiana Jones really, really bad, I'd be that mad (laughs) as well. Um, His name is George Lucas. Yeah, well, okay. Um, (laughs) There was a few, but you know what I mean. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, but then you have the people that enjoyed the series but aren't fanatics about it kind of thing. Well, sorry, maybe a little strong wording there. But uh, <laughs> but and for them, what's cool is that what's happening here is that we're able to make those comparisons between all of this. Mm-hmm. And in so much as Abrams is trying to do his own thing with the reimagining. And they talk about that quite a bit in the extra features on the into darkness. What's also happening is that they're making sure to still stay true within reason and have references to and different things to the original Star Trek. I mean, if you look at the first Star Trek that came out, um, again, the reimagining that came out to, in 2009, there's the whole bit with the Kobayashi Maru, the mm-hmm. no-win scenario, which is in Wrath of Khan at the beginning. So in, in the Wrath of Khan, of course, it's um, Savick who's going through that, who is Kirstie Alley's first movie role. And, and basically, it's the same kind of no-win scenario, and then you get Kirk talking to her as quote unquote Admiral Kirk at that point and explaining to her how it is, why they do it. Meanwhile, in the reimagining, it's Kirk going through it. So I really liked those similarities and, and being able to point those out. And we're going to go through some of those as we're talking about these, both of these con movies. And then the other group of people are like, you're saying the people who really did not have a lot of Star Trek in their lives. So this is just something that's a fun adventure movie. And as much as, again, I, I like the principles behind the original Star Trek and the canon and everything else, I've enjoyed these. In fact, I've enjoyed them a lot. And I like that Abrams has ramped it up and that it's not just about again, exploration. And the, the the fact is, though, that if you go through some of these episodes, there is a ton of adventure. Mm-hmm. It's not just about, you know, exploration. The freaking Enterprise has photon torpedoes for a reason. <laughs> there is a lot of violence, a lot of things blowing up. So yeah. I really, I like the adventure. I like the way they're doing it. And I've, I like, I love the cast and I like what they're doing with the reimagined. And as we've made abundantly apparent in our comic book podcast, we both like when they take a spin on a, an alternate universe or a parallel universe or a reimagining like this, so long as it works. And in my opinion, it does. See, I will say that I did really enjoy the 2009 Star Trek. Like, I thought for what they were trying to do, they succeeded very well and set themselves up for a series of fun movies to follow now as well come to discuss i don't think they quite lived up to that with into darkness but i I do agree that the cast is really what makes this reboot work when it does work that i mean zachary quinto and carl urban are all stars for their interpretations of spock and mccoy that they're spot on character wise enough that i mean i i I, I think Carl Urban is has to be related, <laughs> but it's still fresh and new and different. And it, it does make that nice parallel between the two while still being something new. And there there is a lot of good that Abrams has done with Star Trek. Yeah, definitely. So if we go back now to when the original Star Trek movie came out, we're looking at 1979 and uh, the TV series had been canceled in 69. And then Gene Roddenberry had kind of lobbied Paramount to continue with the franchise. Now Paramount had enough faith in sci-fi movies at the time because of the success of Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind that he pushed for, they pushed for this to go through. It went way over budget and it didn't make as much as the studio had expected. So when they started talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, they were going to really go cheaper. Plus, they actually forced Gene Roddenberry out of creative control. So what we got with Star Trek is a lot, or I should say Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, is something that could have been much better, and not to say that it's not good because of the... Uh, first generation movies, it's highly considered as the best of them. 
But it could have been so much more if they hadn't had to, you know, reuse various miniatures from other projects and reusing sets and even special effects and costumes and everything like that. And that's one of the things that held it back when they were initially reviewing the movie as well. And then you had things like Spock or Leonard didn't even, Nemo, didn't even want to come back. It wasn't even known whether he was going to be coming back for this movie. But then they told him that he'd be dying in it and in a fairly spectacular <laughs> way. So he agreed to it at that point. And over the years, we've heard him say that he was done with Star Trek several times. And yet he's still appearing in the damn movies. That's um, why still to this day, the best interpretation of Scott or uh, of Spock is Alan Rickman from Galaxy Quest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, so continue. So, yeah. Um, starting off with, again, the, uh, the wrath of Khan, we have the Kobayashi Maru scene that basically lays the groundwork for what is going on with the crew because people have moved on. They're in other ships or with Kirk, basically not even on a ship anymore. And then you cut also to the USS Reliant and they're on a mission. And this is important because they're, they're on a mission to find a planet that can be terraformed because there is a Genesis device that's been developed. And what this device can do is it can basically terraform a planet in like no time flat. In so doing though, it also destroys any life that's on that planet. If in fact there is any, so you're basically hitting a reset button. So, when they go down to SETI Alpha 5 to see whether or not this is a good planet to test the Genesis device on, they find Khan, or rather Khan finds them. And Khan and his crew have been living on this planet ever since they were exiled there for trying to take over the Enterprise. And it hasn't been an easy life. Basically, SETI Alpha 6 exploded and it shifted the orbit of Alpha 5, completely destroying their ecosystem. So there is just sandstorms, and there's who the hell knows how these people have survived there. But not all of them have, including Khan's wife. She died, and so he blames Kirk for this. So he implants both Chekhov and Terrell, another dude, uh, with bugs that render them susceptible to mind control and then sends them back to the Reliant. They then wind up taking over the Reliant and at that point they're also going to be heading off to that space station where they developed the Genesis device and that's where Kirk's old flame, Dr. Carol Marcus works as well as their son David. Allow me to just say that initially seeing this movie at a young age even when I was re-watching it last week that bug scene still freaks me out. <laughs> I don't know if it's the scene itself or the fact that it was implanted on me when I was like six years That's old. That's probably <laughs> what it is. Now, by this point, um, again, this is where we're looking at the differences in the, in the styles and themes of these movies. Even though there's a lot of tension, it's not action packed. You're, you're, you're not on the edge of your seat by any stretch of the imagination, but what you are, what you do have is very good performances, especially of course, from, um, Ricardo Montalbán, legendary, who does a phenomenal job as Khan. Now what's funny is that the film was close to production approval when it occurred to the the producers that no one even asked if Mondoban <laughs> was interested in appearing in the show. Now we're talking about, you know, 10 year difference here between his appearance on the TV show. And at the time he was doing fantasy Island as well, as well. So he, he did wind up doing it and they did make a point of saying as well that when you see him, because he wears, you know, basically chest wide open shirt kind of thing, those aren't implants. <laughs> dude is like rocking his 60s in this movie or 50s or 60s and he is in freaking awesome shape and uh forget my 50s i would pay money to look that, like good that now. now yeah really <laughs> and uh but yeah his performance was amazing and again he his character is seen as one of 
the strongest villains and also characters in the Star Trek canon. But he just works it beginning to end as, as a character that is not truly evil. And this is something that Montalban talked about as well, saying that, you know, you need the characters, even villains, there has to be justification. If, only in their minds for why they're doing this. And if you can appreciate that justification and kind of put yourself in their mind, it makes sense. And he pulled that off so well here because there's moments where you're like, yeah, I might do the same thing. Mm -hmm. See, what always made Khan so interesting in the movie to me was, you know, he was genetically bred to be this, you know, superior being the superior mind. And at any number of points, he could have achieved total victory, but it was his delusion with uh, with the lust for revenge that so frequently prevented him from doing that that I really enjoyed. Yeah. So now they went basically. You 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 don't see it, but they're gone to destroy the um, what's going on with the Genesis and and take it over. And meanwhile. Before they get there, the uh, captain, or sorry, at that point, it's Admiral Kirk, gets a message from Dr. Marcus, who is saying, like, why are you sending over the Reliant to inspect us? And things like that. It's way too early, and we haven't done all the tests, blah, 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 what's going on? And he's like, I didn't authorize that. Because now you got to keep in mind, at this point, Chekhov is still mind-controlled. So he's saying, we didn't do that. Now, at this point, the Enterprise is out on a training mission and it's not even really a mission they're just kind of dinking around the universe and so they decide yeah we got to go over and see what is going on because it's bad and of course spock being the logic one says the seat is yours captain's chair is yours so just take over and they they all fall back into their respective roles of course but you still have a very young crew who is completely inexperienced. And when you're looking at the fact that they're going up against the toughest villain that the, they have ever gone up against before having a very young crew like that, the, the audience can see the bad things to come. (laughs) The crew can't, but man, the audience sure can. So, so yeah, so then they take off what winds up happening once they they basically get close enough, they a they get ambushed by the reliant. But then you have this again. You you have to look at it differently than a modern day action movie. It's this chess match between the two ships of you know no you drop your shield no you drop your shield and then the <laughs> bouncing back and forth and the the transporter and basically playing with what they have, trying to fix the ships so that they can hold their own. And I really enjoyed that. And I especially love how they then worked that Abrams worked that into, into darkness. Okay. (laughs) You don't think so? I don't know. It didn't, it didn't work for me on quite the same level. Okay. All right. Um, At this point now, basically they figured out that Marcus and David beamed off of the science place. And so Kirk goes after them to, figure out what's going on, Kirk and a few others. A whole bunch of stuff happens there. And there's again, more fighting little play between with words between Kirk and Spock as they're figuring out who's going to go where with what ship and Khan being mortally wounded actually activates the Genesis device, figuring it's going to also take out not just his ship, but also the enterprise. And at the last minute, Spock saves the day by restoring power to the warp drive so that the Enterprise can just pedal to the metal out of there and survive. But in so doing, he's trapped in the enclosure that holds all the radiation in with the warp drive, and he dies. And you have that iconic scene with him behind the glass and Sp- and Kirk, who is beside himself, them talking to each other and him having to watch Spock die in the moment again with hands touching each other through the glass. And it's, it's a very powerful moment. And it's, and it's again, as far as anybody knows, at least up until this point, Spock's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it was really like reading the script. I can see how Leonard Nimoy would have said, damn, that's a good death. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll <laughs> sign off on this. Yeah, it, because through everything they did in that movie, like it really played up on the years of relationship those two characters had. And that scene was, of course, the ultimate payoff to it, and it did not disappoint. Yeah. And then you have the funeral session, and they're still in the ship, and they send the his coffin off on the newly formed planet that this Genesis device created a planet, very lush planet. And what's funny is that if you, you read into a little bit more of, of uh, the backstory, the character of Savick, who was working under Spock, and she's a Vulcan as well, actually cries during that funeral. And a lot of people were saying a Vulcan wouldn't cry. They wouldn't have that emotion, but she's actually in the script Vulcan Romulan heritage, but that wasn't in the movie. And they, hmm. they decided to leave it in just because it was so powerful to see this, what you think is just a Vulcan crying over the death of, of Spock. And again, one of those things where I, I think it fits even without knowing all the backstory, yeah, I wasn't like waving my arms. <laughs> I'm sure some people were. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm definitely sure some people were. So now let's flash forward to Into Darkness, Star Trek Into Darkness. They made a big deal about the title as well. No colon. <laughs> so this takes place after, of course, Star Trek of 2009. And they are basically the promise of adventure that you got from Star Trek. They made sure to insert that seen on the red planet and it was like that homage to they were saying Raiders of the Lost Ark where you have something that has no bearing on the rest of the show but it just starts you off running and it dies. I watched this on Blu-ray on our big screen and that scene is so freaking vibrant not only is it fun but it's they spent six months stapling freaking red leaves to trees, okay? <laughs> How much did that guy get paid? Really, there's a crew of them that did this. And so, like, because that red planet, again, that's not CGI. They made that scene for that forest. And then they, I watched the extras where they talked about all the, the stuff for designing the, the, the indigenous people that are there as well. And man, that scene is just an absolute blast to watch, and it starts the ball rolling so well. Yeah, and that's one thing I definitely can't take away from Abrams on this film is all of the action sequences are phenomenal. All of the set pieces, it's it works. When he's being J.J. Abrams and really rocking that director's chair, he really is one of the best in the business. Yeah, and basically they were told they wanted a scene where the Enterprise comes out of the water. And that's where that came from. And Can sure do. Enough, yeah, basically, yeah. And uh, and so the the you get this scene where the Enterprise comes out of the water that is spectacular, absolutely amazing. And in so doing, what's going on, of course, if you haven't seen the movie, is Spock's in the volcano and he needs to activate a device to stop the volcano from basically killing everybody and destroying this this race. And Kirk decides that he's going to violate the Prime Directive, allow them to see the ship so that he can save Spock because he's basically stranded in the volcano. What was funny as well, too, is when they were designing Spock's outfit, it's like that really nice copper. They said, we understand that that's the best heat, you know? <laughs> it it, it <laughs> basically translates, transmits heat the best, but we used it just because it looked cool. <laughs> it, it's space copper. It's basically, different. yeah, it's completely different. Um, heat conductivity be damned. But the scene too, like like when you're seeing all that they went through for that scene of Spock in the freaking volcano and it's shooting up and he's got his arms out, like, oh my God, it, Zachary did such a great job. It's a like small scene time speaking in terms of how much time he was down there, but man, so well done. Like he knows that in his mind, he'll be left down there to die. And he accepts it. And you see that moment when he just kind of tilts his head a little bit and closes his eyes and puts his arms out. Just brilliant. Absolutely loved it. 
yeah, I can't add anything more. So basically, because of this, Spock puts a report in, as only he would, <laughs> explaining what happened. So Christopher Pike, who's Bruce Greenwood, comes back to reprise his role. Of course, you know, the only rule that ever matters for him is that he was Batman. He was the voice of Batman in Under the Red Hood. Nothing else matters. <laughs> From here on out, he's Batman. Um, so he decides to, well, not he, but he is told that they are stripping the Enterprise away from Kirk. And you find out later that they're actually giving it back to Pike as well. And Pike's a very lovable character as he was in both of these. He's a phenomenal actor, Canadian dude. High five. And, um, <laughs> and so he convinces them to allow Kirk to come back as his first officer. The scenes again between him, you see him and, and Kirk and it's that surrogate father kind of thing over the, these two, two movies. And I'm kind of disappointed that they did in fact kill him off. I understand that you need, they needed something to spur the characters on and whatnot story wise, but man, I would have loved to have seen him reprise that role in future movies, which obviously they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I really liked about uh, that whole sequence is Pike wasn't really upset with Kirk for violating the prime directive. He was just upset with, you know, him lying about it and hiding it and showing that, you know, yes, you're going to be in those no win situations as Kobayashi Maru scenarios. And you're always going to make the wrong choice in that in that situation. But you have to own it. You have to have you know, the responsibility for it, which is something we saw with old Kirk in in the movies and everything where, you know, he'd been captain for a while. He'd learned that responsibility. He was still that cowboy, but he never hid from it. And like, that was a really nice interpretation of a younger version of the same character. Yeah, I agree. So at this point is where it starts to get interesting now, because all of the captains and their first officers are brought to London because there was a an explosion at Section 31, which is basically just archives. And you find out that John Harrison, who is with Starfleet, basically caused the explosion. And it's Kirk who figures out that there's something going on here because Harrison would know that we would all have to come here to discuss this. And sure enough, jump ship comes out and attacks, wipes the freaking floor with everybody. I like that in the special um, features as well. They showed that it's not all just special effects. They actually jerry-rigged this light thing off of cables and everything. So when you are looking through those windows and you're seeing the lights and you're seeing everything going on, there's actually a, a freaking light rig there that they to make it more real and intense for the actors and they kept it in too it's not all cgi so what you're actually looking at is this weird concoction of <laughs> you know lights strung together it's very cool for added authenticity 10 percent of the bullets were real yeah really <laughs> actually they showed a lot on the special effects that they did for that and and how um like the panel that he punches to open to get the the um the water hose that was actually made initially they thought they'd have to do that with special effects and all no they actually made something so that it worked it was actually fairly cool but anyways so here you have harrison in the jump ship and of course that's uh cumberbatch and he is laying waste everybody and it's kirk who takes the ship down in a freaking blaze of glory but before cumberbatch can you know fall to his death he transports out of there and you find out later that he is transported to the Klingon homeworld. What I thought was cool here too, is that, and and part of that is because I've been watching the next generation. Of course, the next generation, there's some tension, of course, between the Klingons and Mm -hmm. everybody else, but at least there's, you know, some peace, but you have to remind yourself that in this time, they ain't friends. So when you find out he's gone to the Klingon homeworld, it's like, oh, crap. Okay, well, I guess we're done with that. (laughs) You know, at least that's what you're (laughs) thinking as a viewer. (laughs) And so it's uh, at this point here, Kirk just is out for revenge. And he talks to a um, Admiral. No. Yes, it is Admiral Marcus. Admiral Robocop. Yes, that's the thing too. I had to tell my son that's Robocop, dude. That, that I, I 
I still couldn't tell you his real name. He's just Admiral Robocop. It's Peter Weller. <laughs> well, I know Peter Weller, but I mean the character. Oh, okay, yeah. So uh, he basically petitions. Um, see, now I'm going to be calling him Robocop the rest of the week. <laughs> work here is done. Give him back the Enterprise so that he could get revenge. And Weller tells Weller Marcus tells him that he they're, they've developed new prototype photon torpedoes and he's to take him to the edge of the neutral zone plow the Klingon place where um, where Khan you, you, at this point you don't know it's Khan but uh, is and then just hightail it out of there and basically Kirk is alright with that and that's it and they're going at this point again you're, you're there's something off with Marcus you know not quite enough yet that you've figured out that he is actually the main bad guy of the movie but there's just enough there still that you're scratching your head and at this point you still don't know that again this dude is con cumberpatch i mean just keep calling him that (laughs) because i can never remember who it is john something or other harrison that's what it is john harrison um what's funny is that it wasn't until the moment in the script when he says, my name is Khan, that you realize it's Khan. And it's, of course, a very iconic line as well, important line. And apparently when Simon Pegg was reading the script, he screamed (laughs) when he read that and cheered. (laughs) And when they cast um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, he didn't know what he was going to be playing initially. They, They wouldn't tell him anything in terms of role or anything. But when... You see him because basically they, uh, they, they, well, I don't want to say they apprehend him. He gives himself up later on after freaking annihilating a squadron of Klingons. But can I just say for a moment how disappointed I was with the Klingons in this movie? Okay, well, let's go there and then we'll move on from there. <laughs> because really, honestly, why were you disappointed? It just... I, it's more of a personal thing with, you know, I love the Klingons as, as a, a race, as a, as a group of characters. Again, and a lot of that goes back to the amazing Klingon work that was present in the later seasons of Deep Space Nine with Worf and, you know, his, his people. It was top-notch stuff. So I've come to expect so much. You say the Klingons are, are going to be in this movie. I was really excited for a lot more than one little scene okay yeah but so you don't have a problem with the again the quote-unquote reimagining that they did because really that all that was just for yeah looks you do i mean next generation reimagined the klingons so it's just that there wasn't enough of them yeah it 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 could have been any alien race it didn't they were interchangeable with pretty much anything they just had to use the klingon name i well yes and no because the whole point later on you're finding out is again marcus wanted to start a war with the Klingons. Sure. And so it shows the importance of that Klingon race and the danger they presented at the time. So I think it had to be them. Now, I will agree that we we could have seen more, but because they weren't the bad guys in the movie, if you would have had more, then you would have had Marcus as a bad guy, Khan as a bad guy, and then the Kling- you're looking mm-hmm. at the freaking a Spider-Man movie. You I'm know, just saying, too within- many bad guys. Within the logic of the Abrams universe, the Klingons are a basic non-entity at this point. We're told they're bad. We haven't seen them previously, and there is really no importance to a viewer who, let's say, you'd never heard of the Klingons before. You know, they're it, they're interchangeable with any other alien race. So much of the threat that they pose depends on prior knowledge of previous series. Which, again, judging this purely as this universe i don't think it worked out well i disagree i understand what you're saying i respect that but i actually disagree because i'm seeing this more as setting it up they were Mm -hmm. actually supposed to be in the first one but they were cut out and so here they're put in it's not too much but it's also still to show their force in this one i'm i could be wrong maybe they're not even planning on really putting another one and who knows but I see this as groundwork of something really great, hopefully coming down the line. I again, sincerely hope so. Yeah, because I, I don't think it would have worked to put too much of them in there. Because, again, you'd be looking at too many bad 
elements in the movie, too many villains, which would have really scattered the story too much. I think that just by having them as a very dangerous force, enough so that Marcus is looking at them for to start a war with them and, and things like that, and seeing their force when they are fighting um, Kirk and Spock and Uhura, when they go there, like, I mean, you're seeing... Uh, 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 what is again in my mind hopefully to come in later movies okay let's move on <laughs> fine <laughs> i did like the redesign of the look as well with the, the the crown head thing going all the way back kind of thing and the 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 earrings on each of the nodes whatever you would call that i thought that was really cool they were saying too it they was all right. they were trying to stay true and respect the original while doing something that's different and they saw it as a way of uh like hundred tribes would mark their bodies after victories. And so you have like all the marks and the, the, the piercings and different things. It was very cool. So, uh, and of course, Khan just lays waste to all of these Klingons. And you can appreciate at that point, just how powerful he is. And He's Captain America. He is freaking better than Captain. He don't need no freaking shield. <laughs> he had guns, guns blazing. Which was like six feet long. The fact that he could use that says a lot right there. Uh, and of course he surrenders once he finds out how many torpedoes there are because at that point he knows what's going on and that his people are on there. So and then we could fast forward He's being held on the Enterprise, and you're getting a few little interactions here between him and Kirk. And man, those, when you're seeing Cumberbatch, the quality of his acting, when he's in that room, and he's giving the history of, A, who he is, what's going on, being used by Marcus, his crew being threatened, and what that again, that line, what would you do for your family kind of thing, and tears coming down his face. Oh, my God. The casting on him, because, again, that's something that Abrams said. They wanted to, again, they're reimagining, reinventing a con while still staying true to the character. And their idea being that, you know, he doesn't look anything like Montalban, but it was cast someone good that supersedes the look. Digging him up, you're not going to find. Yeah, but man, they he stole every single scene he was in. He was the star of this movie. Nobody else. Yeah, I'll agree with that. And performance wise, of course, he's no Ricardo Montalban. But this con also isn't that con. I think he was the perfect choice for this interpretation of the character. Yeah. Yeah, and you see, and this is one of the things it might piss people off, but I will say it. Not only did I prefer this con, but I preferred Cumberbatch, his performance, everything about it. I, you felt a lot more for the character as well. And granted, some of that is the writing, of course, too, because he was given these phenomenal scenes to work with, and up until the end you're still really believing that this is actually a, a good guy that was put in a very bad situation. It's not until later you realize just how freaking batshit crazy he is. <laughs> but until then, man, you're kind of rooting for him in some ways. See, but again, this is where one of my personal issues with the film pops up because we're a little less than halfway through the movie when you get the big reveal that Harrison is con. And I, I can't speak for anybody else. Personally, I knew it was con two years before the movie came out because, you know, I just follow certain well, yeah. news sources. But the whole first half of the movie essentially is built around the reveal that, you know, John Harrison is con. Yeah. Which kind of fell flat. Be- really? Yeah, because if you're, again, looking at this as, you know, an Abrams universe thing, you know, not comparing it to Wrath of Khan at this point. He's just a guy with a different name. Like it the fact the thing that made Wrath of Khan such a big deal was that it was an old character with history of the crew coming back. And that's what made the fact that it was that specific character interesting. And while I can understand that they're doing their own twist on the character, building a large 
portion of the movie around the reveal that he's a specific character didn't carry any weight for me. Okay, I see where you're going with this. The thing is, though, is that they couldn't have that history with that crew. No, I, I agree. It's just not even possible. So the, the reveal of Khan is not important in the movie. It's important to the fans. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And I agree. I completely agree. But as a fan, it, it was worth it. As a fan, that, that was enough it, because it just then took the character to another level. Now, granted, again, I will say the same thing. Everybody knew this is Khan. Actually, a surprising number of people had no clue. Really? Yeah. Okay, like, there well, were people I'm... raging on Twitter when people said it was Khan. Okay, that's after the movie came very out. Like, surprising. People were losing their minds because the entire marketing around the movie was specifically aimed towards no mention of Khan. Like, J.J. Abrams was very vehemently withholding that information, and anytime a website, you know, published a rumor or something about it, he would publicly call them out as liars. He, he tried so hard to hide the secret that wasn't even remotely a secret yeah, to begin but, with. I mean, if you followed what the movie was going to be about, and you saw all the similarities as well, it didn't take too much to figure it out kind of thing. So uh, apparently he thought it was a pretty big deal. Okay. Well, hey, I knew going in that it was con yeah. and I knew, but I was, and see, this is me and folks will understand that as they're listening to more of the episodes here. I allow myself to get sucked into a movie. I do. I'm, I used to be the type that, you know, would dissect things and try to figure things out as it's going on. But then, you you miss so much of it. So I allow myself to get sucked right in and it pisses me off if my, she won't do it anymore. But my wife used to spoil <laughs> things. Oh, I know what this is. I know what's going on. <laughs> I'm in the moment. Okay. <laughs> so I allowed myself to just kind of enjoy it. And this is not con. It's just this dude who's, you know, doing bad things. And I really tried to do that with right. this movie. I just couldn't because you just rationally make those comparisons yeah. knowing oh, of yeah, the wrath yeah. of con. Now, I still, you know what? I still, even knowing that, those scenes when he's in that freaking bubble little prison thing there, which was really cool. I like that special effect. <laughs> was like, again, my name is Khan. It is it was such a great line. And then his whole speech afterwards about his crew, man, it's that to me was the scene of the movie that oh, yeah. stole everything. Yeah. Nothing away from the performance. Yeah. I'm just saying as far as a big plot point, that specific thing didn't work for me. Okay. So moving ahead, this is where you're figuring out the actual bad guy in the movie is Marcus. Yeah. Khan is also going to be bad and things like that, but Marcus is the one that's, he's lost his shit and he had brought, Khan out of refrigeration so that he could create weapons for him because in addition to being stronger and everything else, he's also a lot smarter and just basically bred for war. And it was the threat of killing his crew, the 72 people in pods that forced Khan to create all these things, including the USS vengeance. <laughs> now this dreadnought makes its appearance Coming after it was the end, pretty darn impressive. Oh my god! Like because the Enterprise, when you're seeing the Enterprise in various you know shots and whatnot, it's 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 a beautiful ship, well designed, and it's the a big pride one. of the fleet. Yeah, it's a big one. So it is actually the warp core has had it. It was obviously sabotage. They're on the edge of the neutral zone. The Klingons aren't too happy for the, with them. And or they wouldn't have been if they'd known they were there. Well, they would have figured it out. It wouldn't take too very long at this point after all the, you know, obliterating the, 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 the whole, what, there was three ships there, three mm -hmm. uh, warships, warbirds. So anyways, along comes the USS Vengeance, and when you see them side by side, the special effects were phenomenal. Oh, phenomenal. But this ship is freaking awesome, and it was built so that it can annihilate anything in its path. And then you get Marcus at that point. And again, here's where you're having that, that play, which obviously you didn't enjoy as much, but I was seeing the comparisons to that play back and forth between the ships that was going on in the wrath of Khan. And I, again, see being able to make those distinctions and those, see those similarities. I really enjoyed that. 
this one didn't work for me because, well, RoboCop cheated. Okay, well, come on. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it, it didn't have that same cat and mouse feeling because one of the parties was just always had the upper hand. Well, not always. Thanks to Scotty. <laughs> oh, yeah, eventually. But... <laughs> I See, I thought it worked in this case just because it really ramped up just how much danger was mm-hmm. there was there for the Enterprise. You so. See, I wasn't even personally comparing this scene to the, the, the similar scene in Wrath of Khan until you mentioned it. But I said it, 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 this one, it was okay. But now that you're specifically asking me to compare the two, it, it's not the same for me. All right. Fine. Be that way. Anyways, um, you have some really good scenes here again with Scotty, of course, who'd been away for too much of this movie. I love Simon Pegg. <laughs> I wanted him in this a lot more. Can we just get a Scotty movie? Yeah, really. Dude, we need a, he needs to have a much larger role. Captain of the next Enterprise. <laughs> um, you have really cool scene two, which is reminiscent of the mining scene in the first one, where Kirk and Khan are going ship to ship to that go. That was to, amazing. The special effects in that were incredible. But if you that, watch this, that is one of the best action sequences I've seen. Oh in a long man, time. it was cool because if you watch the special features. I don't know if the special features, that one is on the the DVD, but it was on the Blu-ray where they showed the making of that and whatnot. It kind of makes you, (laughs) it's, it's funny. It's, (laughs) you're never going to look at the scene the same because they actually were standing on green screens (laughs) instead for some of it and just looking up and then just kind of shifting side to side. It was hysterical, but it's it's like when you find out Batman and Robin weren't really climbing up that building. Really? Yeah. That's exactly what it is. But they were also zipping along. There was actually, once they go into the the vengeance and there's that massive slide and, and tumble there, part of the filming for that, there was a dude with a camera on the ground and they had a harness tied to him and they were pulling him back super fast so that he could film them as they were sliding in because the actors were actually sliding in on ropes themselves. It was actually amazing filming, phenomenal special effects for that too. Great scene, like you were saying. Who would want to be a cameraman anymore? (laughs) (laughs) You know, back in the day, you just stood there and held a camera. You know, maybe you had to occasionally bend over. (laughs) Now these poor guys. Put through hell. Um, so you got Kirk and Scotty and, uh, and Khan making their way to the, the bridge for the big finale with, well, the big finale for, for Marcus. <laughs> and then at that point, Khan becomes the bad guy. I like as well. This is where they brought in Leonard Nimoy and it fits. Who's Spock going to call for advice? Well, he's going to call Spock. So he calls up Spock and finds out about Khan. And this is where then you get, Leonard, I shouldn't say Leonard Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy Spock talking about the, the con that we know from the Wrath of Khan. And so I really kind of like that. I, I really wish that scene would have been longer, actually, as I'm sure a lot of people did. But this needs to be it. I don't want the really? next movie, them calling up Spock again, asking for advice. Like, like all right, you know, I, I, I it was it was a good scene and all, but I was like, all right, I. This hotline needs to get away. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, I mean, like, does Commissioner Gordon even call the police anymore? No, he just picks no, up of the course. phone. Yeah. Well, if it works for him. Um, it's two Batman references in one episode. <laughs> but it's Batman. Come on. Oh, three crowning, counting Bruce Greenwood. Four uh, counting my earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and our next episode of Popcorn Road. <laughs> Uh, again, the back and forth here between now, Khan and Spock, I enjoyed. I'm going to guess you did not, but I enjoyed it. I had no issues. You had no issues? Okay. No. But you didn't like it. It's not that no, you... No, it was, it was it perfectly was fine. fine. Okay. This was a much better cat and mouse scenario than the earlier one. Right. Um, what this sets up, of course, is Khan wants to obliterate the the Enterprise and Spock sends over actual torpedoes not the torpedoes with his crew in it and so it sets up both ships now are going to fall and at this point now they're right around earth's moon because the enterprise tried to get away from the vengeance without any success whatsoever and they both start falling towards earth and i like that abrams was saying like they wanted to bring it to our backyard 
far too many times you see problems like this. It's not happening on Earth. Mm-hmm. Here it's boom Earth. And the special effects of, well, not so much. In this case here, it's Kirk who saves the Enterprise. He's the one that goes into the chamber to um, <laughs> kick the warp core back into play. <laughs> How else is Kirk going to fix anything? <laughs> really kick it. It'll work. Works with computers too. Um I mean, that scene was good with him kind of thing. And between him and, and Spock, um, I didn't think nearly as good as the Rathacon, but, but it worked kind of thing. It was the flip side of the thing. But the scene See, that I loved... Oh, go ahead. As I, and as I mentioned, what made that scene so important was... And this was the culmination of you know, several years of character development. You know, and These guys have been together on their five-year mission and then even after and beyond that, where you know, Kirk and Spock in the newer movies, you know, they're... They still don't even really know each other. They, they don't even like each other all the time. On. Yeah. So that that the scene, it didn't have even a fraction of the no. power as the original did. Yeah, no. It was just there as, again... Checking it off the groundwork. list. Yeah, and groundwork, hopefully, for the characters and how close they will be in future movies. You go through something like this, it changes you, and you can appreciate that in future movies. Again, that's... I'm not saying that's what it is, folks. I'm just saying... That's how I see it. If I was writing it and whatnot, to me, that makes sense kind of thing. And it is, they had to put that in considering the working with Khan and whatnot. But the scene that steals everything here is freaking (laughs) Khan driving that dreadnought into San Francisco. Holy crap. Once again, special effects wise, unbelievable scene, just jaw dropping. I can only imagine in in IMAX because that's one of the things that I that Abrams made a big deal about. It had to be IMAX. I can only imagine how this would look on those massive screens. I think we're going to be having this exact same conversation next episode. Too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, from here you have now it's Spock and Khan battling out on garbage collectors and you see the difference between Spock's much more calculating approach calculated approach versus Khan just being a lot more brutal and whatnot and I absolutely loved how Khan just shrugged off the death grip yeah really <laughs> he's like no nah, this ain't nothing <laughs> it makes for uh, again a, a good fight scene it's nice to see Quinto able to really let loose a little bit as well because the character is so reserved that when you see him really letting go, it's, it's much more impactful. Um, again, it was a, it was a good special effects scene. It was well done. And in as a culmination to the movie, again, I thought it worked. I was in for the ride for this movie beginning to end. So I really enjoyed all of these things. And I, f- I felt again, and when, when you're seeing again, that ship cr- crashing into San Francisco and then the, that fight scene. Yeah, I was in, that was good. Good enough for me. I was happy. Overall, the fight was okay for me. Like it was, it was the least impressive of the action scenes in the movie. But that's not to say it was bad. But I looked at it not in terms of again the special effects behind it so much as the characters, especially character development for for Spock, sure. because he's sure. losing it on somebody kind of thing. Which we kind of we well not kind of we did see in the first one as well. So we're seeing more of that with this Spock, and I dig that. I'm I'm really liking that. So mm-hmm. uh, and then basically. Using his Khan's blood, they need to bring him back so that they can revive Kirk. The whole thing with the Tribble, man, when you see the Tribble at the beginning and he's saying, what are you doing? I'm trying to put these, you know, seeing with this effect. And it's like, oh my God, holy foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> we know what this is going to be used for later. And, and that's why, you know, Kirk's death ultimately Meant in the movie was meaningless. Yeah. Like they, they had set it up so many times previously in the movie. You're like... You knew, you know, he, obviously they're not going to kill off Kirk in this movie. Whereas, again, in Wrath of Khan, you, we were pretty sure they killed Spock at that point. Yeah. So basically brings Kirk back, of course, and ends with an address a year later. Basically, memorize. Memori- I can't even say it. <laughs> Realizing the events. And what I like, too, is they used actual servicemen and women for that. They, there's a program called uh, Continuing the Mission for Real Veterans. So they used those in that scene, which I thought was phenomenal. Really, really cool. Um, so, again, overall, in terms of, like, it, it was the highest grossing Star Trek movie so far, Into Darkness. 
for me, this is a, a big recommendation to people, not just a, oh, maybe you should watch this. This was like, no, you really should watch this. I dug it beginning to end. Absolutely loved it. It, it didn't work for me overall. Like a lot of the individual pieces I really enjoyed, but taking the movie as a whole, the, the overall plot and everything, I, it didn't come together for me. I, I feel this is a pretty big missed opportunity overall. Really? Yeah. See, it's surprising I, I, because when you're looking at basically the majority of the reviews are fairly positive about it as well as fan opinions. Oh, yeah. I, I do realize I'm the dissenting opinion here. It's just overall and, – and I clearly enjoyed the, the first one more. And even amongst like the non-Star Trek fans that I know, like a lot of people I know preferred the first Abrams movie to this one. Now, even the people that did legitimately like this one. But I said for me, I, I liked a lot of the performances. I liked the action sequences. But I said the, the overall plot for me had no weight whatsoever. Hmm. Okay, well... And it, it just didn't hold together. Well, I absolutely loved it. Uh, a large part of that for me, too, is, of course, Cumberbatch, his performance. It's... I mean, I'm, like, hopefully everybody else, a massive Sherlock fan. That's where I really came to appreciate his acting and what he can do. And you really then appreciate his acting when you compare it to this performance, which is completely different. And you can see like the acting chops that this guy has got and the fact that he just stole the movie from really good actors. So to me, like when you have that kind of situation, you've got a winning movie. And as long as the, 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 the plot, the story elements and the, the action, everything else can, can jive along with it. I'm in it for the ride. Mm-hmm. So I, I I just really hope Cumberbatch doesn't become, you know, that guy that's suddenly shoehorned into everything because he, you know, obviously Sherlock and this, and he's really got a number of movies coming out within the next year or so. I mean, that's great. He deserves all those roles, but we've seen this so many times with other actors where, you know, they're the hot commodity on the market and they just get shoved into every role to kind of bank off their name. And as much as I like Cumberbatch as an actor, I don't think there's a lot of roles that he's really going to work for. So I just hope really? that they, they cast him smartly and not just shove him in everywhere. I, that, I'm not so sure about that. I honestly, there's that dude can, is, I think he's going to impress us in damn near everything he does. Just again, based off of these roles. Say, so I, 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 I need to see more range from him before I'm fully convinced. But I said, I, I, I love the guy. Like, he's a great actor, and I've really enjoyed him in the two things I've seen him in. And like I said, I know he's in at least two more movies coming up within the next year. So judging on you know, how I see him there, we'll see how much more mass appeal he has. But like I said, he's, he's not going to be you know, a nobody. Yeah. Okay. Well, folks, leave us your opinions in the comments here. Let us know what you thought about both of these movies, which one you prefer and anything that you disagree with about what we said. And our next episode, why don't you tell them what we're doing for the next episode? Giant robots. (laughs) I had no choice in the matter. I gave you a choice. Yeah, I'll leave the podcast or we do this. I gave (laughs) you a choice between this episode or the one after. (laughs) So we are going to be doing Pacific Rim. It's going to be, there's not going to be a lot of lead in time for the episode because I haven't seen it yet. So basically I'm picking it up on the Tuesday it comes out when we record on Thursday. So I'll try to not only watch it, but also watch the special features afterwards. And then we'll be able to talk about it. I'm assuming you are, of course, picking it up immediately. Yeah. Blu-ray or DVD? Oh, it has to be Blu-ray. Uh, Blu-ray, of course. I'm sure it'll look freaking gorgeous. At, I, at this point, if a movie isn't worth dropping the extra money on a Blu-ray, it's probably not worth owning picking in the first, up in place. first place. You're absolutely right. Okay, so make sure to check us out then. And for any information and for reviews of other shows and whatnot, stop by popcornronin.com, and we will talk to you in a couple of weeks. I just want to slam Pacific Rim, even if I like it, just to piss you off. <laughs> Thus Stupid far in, in my life, I know one person that didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, but again, you know a lot of stupid people. 
A it was the lot. stupid person that didn't like it. And in oh damn it. <laughs> <laughs> movie, TV, and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their comic book informer podcast and Internet Dragons TV gaming videos. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, manellijamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. Mm-hmm.